This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you got to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you every day that if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Before we get to some questions that have been sent in, we wait for phone calls. Two quick reminders tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be talking about food Clean and unclean food. Leviticus, I'm going to finish chapter 10 and then do all of chapter 11. Um, believe it or not, I think it's kind of interesting. It's it's uh, um, to, it tells us a lot about God's heart for us. But, but uh, that is tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch that live stream at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. And then tomorrow, of course, will be the date day show. Paula will be live in studio with us here, and uh, she will be ready for whatever questions that you might have. Here are some questions that have come in while we wait your phone calls from our mobile app. This one is uh, anonymous. How can you tell if someone is possessed by demons? Um, Anonymous, it's not always really evident. Now, typically, what will happen when somebody is possessed by a demon, when you start talking about Jesus, uh, they will lose it. They will get really, really angry. Uh, You can see uh, physical manifestations. Their eyes will get big. Uh, I've actually seen eyes that spin a little bit. Uh, Voices will, will, will change. They'll get very low and guttural, uh, sometimes very, very loud. Um, but but there's really um, just in casual contact with people, there's really no no possible way to know. Uh, one of the things that we've got to be careful of when we're dealing with people who you suspect might be possessed by a demon, uh, you need to know if they've been messing around with drugs, especially mind altering drugs, uh, marijuana, um, um, any, any others really. Um, but but there's no real way to know. Uh, when you are in count, I, I can tell you this, when you are dealing with the demon, when the demon is taking control of the host, uh, then you can know for sure. 
and there's all kinds of different manifestations of that. Uh, as I said earlier, anger, the voices will change. Um, they'll get this crazy look in their eyes. Um, Paula is actually just touching somebody, a woman who is possessed by a demon in a nursing home ministry. She instantly got really sick. So I think it's just something that the Lord will give you the discernment when you're dealing with. Now, let me say this to you, Anonymous, and everybody else. You know, there are people that like to encounter demons, and it is horrible. It's the worst thing that any of us as Christians are going to encounter in this world. There's nothing pleasant. There's nothing fun or adventurous about it. And before you go to war with somebody possessed by a demon, you need to be sure that your heart is right with the Lord. Uh, There can't be hidden sin uh, that will strip the Holy Spirit of his ability to protect you and empower you. Um, So you just take it very, very seriously. And it's better if your heart's not right with God. If if there's unrepentant sin in your life, it's better just to avoid the encounter altogether. So um, I I know that's a very general answer, but really uh, the situations are different. Every time you encounter a demon, remember, demons lie. And uh, every time you encounter a demon, the situation will be different. So I hope that helps a little bit. Here is a question uh, from our email inbox. This one is anonymous. Hello, Pastor On. I was having a conversation with another Christian, and we were talking about tithing. And she told me that tithing was a New Testament concept. She said that we should be tithing because God is the same and he never changes. Can you go over the difference between giving and tithing? And is tithing um, a New Testament Testament concept? And if not, how do I explain to her why it's not? Now, I think here's the key to this email that gives us some insight uh, to the, the person uh, asking the questions, or not asking this question, but the one she was talking to. Um, she also said that it was important to tithe because God wants us to have an abundant life. I told her that material things was not what God was talking about when it came to abundant, but she kept arguing that God doesn't want us to live without a nice house and a nice car, etc. Thank you for the work that you do. You've been a blessing since I started listening to the radio show. May the Lord bless you. Anonymous, thank you very, very much for the kind words, and I'm grateful that you are listening to the program. Now, the the person that you're speaking to um, sort of showed her cards, uh, she's going to a prosperity church, and prosperity church is wrong on on just every every matter of doctrine. Um, the, the 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 churches like that are appealing to our carnal nature or our flesh, and um, they they make money doing it. If, if they can convince people like the person you're talking to that they have to give, well, obviously they keep money coming into the church and they benefit from it. The idea that Jesus wants us to live a materially prosperous life is laughable. It's sophomoric. Uh, and it's just not something that Jesus he cares about at all. He wants us to live and promise us, by the way, an abundant spiritual life. And that abundance comes from being in his presence. So uh, she's just, you got to give to get. And and uh, motive is, is everything. When James says, we have not because we ask not, or because we ask amiss, or better translated, we ask with the wrong motive. And um, so so th- th- this, this person that you're talking to... Um, 
really needs a complete overhaul in who she's listening to and the doctrine that she's been uh, wrongly taught, the false doctrine that she's been wrongly taught. So let me talk about giving versus tithing. Tithing is not a New Testament principle. You can't find it in the New Testament beyond the gospel accounts. And, And remember the gospel... Remember, the gospel accounts are very Jewish. Jesus was under the law to fulfill the law. And so when he said things like, um, um, it is right that you tithe, you give a tenth, and that's what a tithe means, it means a tenth, um, uh, that was to fulfill the law. Jews were under the law. Jesus came under the law to fulfill the law. Uh, Once you get beyond the Gospels, there's not another mention of a tithe at all. And in fact, the the concept to giving, um, the stakes are raised. Um, If if under the law, a law that condemns, uh, we're required to give 10% uh, to the work of, of Christ, how much more should we give when we've been given grace? So the idea that tithing is a New Testament concept uh, is is not really intellectually honest scholarship. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I want to give to the Lord because of everything that he's done for me, and I don't know how much to give, so I'm going to start with 10%. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be open, understanding that everything that we have belongs to God. And I think that's what's missing from this. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, um, we don't want you to give unto compulsion. Um, no pressure, no manipulation. Uh, and that's exactly what tithing is. It's, it's uh, using the law, a law that's been canceled. The law that opposed us has been canceled. And Jesus has given us an entirely new covenant. So giving for a New Testament Christian needs to be done out of a joyful, grateful heart. And then we give whatever God puts on our heart to give. Now, the people that say, well, if you do that, people won't give enough. Well, they don't trust God to work in the hearts of the people. So um, at our church, Anonymous, uh, we've never passed an offering. We've never asked for money. Uh, We've never let our needs be known. We do virtually everything here at Calvary Chapel for free, and it takes a lot of money. And the Lord has turned our church into a very generous group of people without ever being compelled to give. So tithing, Old Testament, remember the Gospels are really dealing with the law until Jesus goes into the upper room and picks up the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. They're under the law. And very Jewish, the Gospel accounts are. Jesus' ministry, very Jewish. And so tithing, no giving with a cheerful heart, yes. And we just need to realize that everything we have belongs to the Lord. He's going to let you keep most of it. He doesn't need your stuff, but he really wants to to, to, to touch your heart. And uh, generosity ought to be an earmark of the born-again Christian's life. One other comment, you know, when we give under compulsion or when we give uh, to get, okay, God, I'm going to give uh, this much money, so you have to give me 10 times that or 30 times that. Um, that's, that's not a proper motive for giving at all. 
So Anonymous, thank you for that. I hope that please pray for your friend, the person that you had a conversation with. She has been infected or he has been infected by um, uh, health and wealth or prosperity doctrine. And it is as evil and wicked as anything could possibly be. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question um, from Oh Trudy. I had her question yesterday, so I need to get rid of that one. This one is from Jonathan, um, Pastor Ron. Did you see that Andy Stanley is hosting a pro LGBTQ plus conference this weekend? What happened to him? Um, Jonathan, yeah, that article, it's written by Al Mohler, by the way, who is the president of Southwestern Baptist Seminary. Uh, Al Mohler, uh, a significant figure in evangelicalism. Um, and it's been making the rounds. And, and yeah, Andy Stanley is hosting a pro-LGBTQ plus conference. Now, they will characterize it differently. They say, no, we're just trying to give all the viewpoints so that we can have a discussion about these things. But the one thing they're not going to do at this conference, Jonathan, is say that that homosexual behavior, transgender behavior, uh, queer behavior, anything else is sinful and needs to be stopped. Two of the speakers on that conference are men who are married to other men. And Andy Stanley, who um, at one time, uh, he still has a very, very large church. But but part of the reason his church is still large is because he's telling people what they want to hear. Now, the reason this is personally sad to me is is uh, Andy's father, Charles Stanley, um, is literally one of my heroes of the faith. Uh, faithful, doctrine, rock solid. Uh, he's with Jesus now, so his doctrine is even better. Uh, but Andy Stanley was a, uh, a pastor on his dad's staff before, many, many years ago, growing up a, a youth pastor. Uh, and he uh, is a gifted communicator. Uh, the problem is that he has deserted the faith. Plain and simple, he has deserted the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints. And as a, a, a fellow pastor... It's our responsibility to deliver the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility to teach the word. And, uh, Jonathan, when we desert that, we, we no longer become a servant of God, but we're actually serving the enemy of our souls. So uh, pray for Andy Stanley. Uh, pray for the people going to that conference, uh, the people that are speaking at that conference. This is an absolutely horrible misrepresentation of Jesus Christ. And, well, uh, I've got theological differences with Al Mohler. I commend him uh, mightily for having the courage to speak out um, against this conference and Andy Stanley for hosting it. There's simply no way to paint this any way other than um, um, they're going to be teaching harmful heresy, enabling people to live a lifestyle that will condemn them to an eternity in hell separated from God. So I hope that answers your question. And yes, that article is going around uh, everywhere at this point. Izzy asks the question, if someone says they are a Christian, but they don't want anything to do with the Bible, can they really be saved? You know, Izzy, it's, you know, we can't judge people. Uh, we, we don't know their hearts. We don't know what all the issues are. 
But here's what I know for sure. When you met Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, if that transformation is genuine, if that conversion is genuine, well, the Holy Spirit is going to set your heart on fire for the Word of God. And I would say, and I'm talking to somebody that, about somebody that I don't know here, but I would say that this person has all kinds of other things going on in their lives. Uh, there, there's some sin that they don't want to, to let go of. I don't know what it is, but a genuine believer. Now, there's going to be spiritual warfare, but, but the genuine believer wants to know what God wants him to do. And the Bible is where we find it. Izzy, let me tell you a very quick story. Personally, you know, when I got saved, um, somebody bought me a brand new, genuine leather, genuine leather King James Bible. Uh, Smelled so good. I put it on my desk at work. I took it home with me every day. I wanted to be with me everywhere. But it was a funny thing because every time I opened it, I would get nauseous. I mean, I would get sick to my stomach. I didn't realize what was going on. And honestly, other than opening it and then closing it back because of the nausea, uh, I didn't open my Bible for six months. It just got to where it was such a burden. And, and, And the Spirit was working in me clearly. And one day I just came to the conclusion that, hey, if I get sick, I get sick. But I've got to open this Bible. I've got to know what it says. I've got to hear what God has to say to me through it. And I opened it. It got a little bit nauseous for a moment, but I kept it open. And then, of course, it just went away because that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, I mean, there are exceptional cases like that. Um, but, but somebody who's a real believer, unless they're just absolutely spiritually lazy, they need to know, they should want to know what the Word says. And so if they're not interested in it, they say they don't want anything to do with it, uh, I would really ask that person, well, what makes you think you're saved? And I think that's a conversation that needs to be uh, done in private. you, You say you're a believer. Well, yeah, I accepted Jesus. Well, why then don't you want anything to do with His Word? And then I'd ask that question, what makes you think you're saved? What makes you think that you're born again? And then you can have a dialogue with that person. And at least the Holy Spirit can use your questions um, to to sort of knock on the door of that person's heart. Very, very, um, I mean, it's impossible, impossible to walk a, a fruitful life with Jesus unless you are in the Word on a consistent basis. Thank you, Izzy. Jose says, I know God... I'm sorry, Jose, I'm laughing not at you. Uh, Jose says, I know God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible, but is the principle solid? Jose, the reason I'm laughing is because almost every new believer thinks that really is in the Bible, and they'll go actually looking for it. Well, we know God helps those who help themselves. That is absolutely the opposite of the biblical principle. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Let me give you a biblical example of this. At the Pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, there was a man who was out there, been a paralytic for 38 years. 
And for 38 years, uh, at least a large part of 38 years, he was going to this pool of Bethesda because there was a, a legend that says, uh, you know, whenever the, the, an angel would trouble the waters, the first person in the water would get healed. And he'd been going for so long that finally he has no hope any longer of getting in the water. Everybody beats him into the water. And in, in, in my mind, I picture him getting farther and farther and farther away from the pool itself. Uh, and, um, you know, when somebody would splash, he'd say, somebody got healed, but it wasn't me. Um, but it was that man, out of all those people who were looking at the water, it was that one man in that crowd, it would be a significant crowd, the one man who could not help himself is the one that Jesus walked up to. Jesus asked him a question, do you want to get well? And he said, how can I? That's my paraphrase. He said, sir, I have no one to help me get in the water. And that's why Jesus chose him. He walked to him and told him to pick up his mat and go home. Happened to be a Sabbath that caused some difficulties for the Lord. But the idea is Jesus helps those of us who know we can't help ourselves. Jesus wants absolute surrender, total surrender. And when we're busy trying to help ourselves, we're actually in the way of the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And Jose, I'll just tell you this. The um, the idea that, that uh, God helps those who help themselves is anathema to the way the Spirit of God works. So by all means, we know it's not in the Bible. The principle is antithetical to what the Scriptures teach. And we need to understand that, that um, trying to help me means I'm getting in the way of the work the Holy Spirit wants to do. So Absolute Surrender, it's a book uh, titled by A.W. Tozer. It's a really good one, by the way. Absolute Surrender is the only solid solid principle. Get out of God's way. He doesn't need our help. You just say, Jesus, you're in charge. What about me and what about today? And you're going to find that the Spirit of God is the one helping you, Um, not that God expects you to do anything at all. Thank you for the question, Jose. Maggie says, what do you say about moderate drinking? Is it okay to do this or is it better not to drink at all? Maggie, it's always better not to drink at all. You know, the Apostle Paul says that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And um, the way we want to approach drinking or smoking cigarettes, which uh, smoking cigarettes is not a sin, uh, smoking cigarettes, the way we want to approach it is, yeah, but, but though I can do it, is it good for me? Does it enhance my walk with Jesus? So uh, the moderate drinker can hold on to the liberty, the freedom to do that. But what he or she is missing there, Maggie, is the question, Lord, is this helpful to my walk with you? Is this helping me be like you? Is this in any way compromising my witness to other people? And the reality is, is there's nothing good that ever happens with alcohol, Maggie. You can go out and you have a drink with your friends on the way home from work and you can pretend like you're having fun. But the reality is, is you just left Jesus outside the bar. Or, or the club, or wherever it is that you're going. So um, I can't say that moderate drinking is a sin because that would go beyond what the Bible says. 
But the reality is nothing positive, nothing beneficial to you, and nothing uh, that brings glory to God happens when we're drinking. And I don't know why we Christians would want to try to see just how much we can get away with and still be saved instead of saying, well, how close can I get to you, Lord, putting away other things on this earth? Now, I don't have to go into detail about all of the damage that alcohol has caused, the numbers of lives that have been absolutely ruined, the families that have been uh, destroyed. Um, uh, there's just nothing good happens with alcohol. And the person who says, um, well, you know, I, I have the freedom to do it. I want to enjoy it. I know pastors, Maggie, who decided to choose their freedom to drink over their commitment to Jesus Christ, who ended up losing their churches because that was just a, a symptom of bigger problems going on in their lives. So I, I advise against drinking always. Um, just the question, Jesus, do you want me to do this? If we would just ask that, um, we'd get our answer. As a believer, should we judge Christians who do moderately drink? The answer is no. Um, we can pray for them, not in a judgmental way, but we can pray for them and, and let the Lord show them what he wants for them. But the, but the Christian who drinks is a Christian who is compromising his or her opportunities to minister to other people. Just nothing good happens when it comes to alcohol. We've got 30 minutes left in our Wednesday show. Uh, phones are quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. If I'm stumbling around a little bit in this half of the program, I am having severe computer issues in the middle of the show. That is not a good thing. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Billy. Uh, Pastor, should Christians observe the Jewish Sabbath and other holy days? Billy, let me answer that with a question. Why would you want to? Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Jewish holy days. He is our Sabbath rest why would we want to celebrate that which is a small picture of the fulfillment that we have in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, I get a lot of flack for the answers that I give about these. Well, well, but we can become more Jewish and understand more. We don't need to do that. You know, the, the disciples who were Jewish, by the way, they didn't stay Jewish. They got saved and became born-again Christians. Jesus told Nicodemus, the most Jewish of men, you must be born again. And why would we hold on to these things? There's, Billy, absolutely no value whatsoever 
been trained to hold on to the Jewish Sabbath or other holy days, um, circumcision. I mean, this was an issue that was fought at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This was an issue that Paul dealt with with the churches in the the province of Galatia. Um, uh, his letter to the Galatians dealt very very firmly with these issues, but there's no value whatsoever in observing Jewish religious days or or observances. There's simply no value. What we should do instead is dig into our Bibles, embrace New Testament doctrine, um, let Jesus be our source of comfort, let Jesus be our source of strength, let Jesus be our source of joy. And uh, other than studying these things, because they're in our our Bibles in the Old Testament, there's just no value in applying those things in your life. The If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Billy, as you can tell, I get this question quite often. I, I don't know. Why in the world anybody would hold on to that? Well, you know, you if you learn what it means to be a Jew because our Savior was Jewish, none of that has any value at all. And it's, 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 it's frankly, it's a waste of time. So thank you. Mitch wants to know, I know God has forgiven our sins, but why do we have to confess sins every day? Uh, Mitch, this is a, a pretty simple explanation. Um, we confess sins every day because when we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. You know, when you get saved, really born again, all of your sins, past, present, and future, all of them are gone. You're forgiven completely. You stand before God positionally in perfect righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness or the perfection of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So God has forgiven our sins. Here's the problem. God is holy. And when we sin, and if we don't repent of those sins and confess those sins, ask to be forgiven. Uh, and by the way, to confess means to agree with God that it's sin, which, which means clearly that we've got to stop doing it then our fellowship with God is broken. The book of 1 John, the entire um, epistle of 1 John is about this very issue. Um, our, our hope, he said, is that our, your fellowship would be with us, and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the idea is we confess our sins, God, and, and we're going to sin. We're, we're imperfect humans. We still have to fight this battle with flesh. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he said, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing continually. And then he says, so wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And and the answer is, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. But Mitch, we've got to acknowledge the sin. And it's not just saying, oh God, I sinned, I'm sorry. But it's it's hating the sin and saying, I'm going to change. I don't want to sin anymore, Lord. So empower me to live a holy and righteous life. And then First John 1, 9, of course, says, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And what that does, Mitch, is that it... Um, um, 
reestablishes our fellowship with the Lord. You know, John in First John says, uh, Jesus is the light. If we want to have fellowship with him, we have to walk in the light. There's no way we can walk in darkness. We can't walk in sin and have any fellowship with the one who is the light. So that's why we confess our sins. And, um, you know, there's no biblical prohibition to to confess every day. But we need to keep short accounts with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul says to examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith. That's one of the reasons the Bible has so much value. When you read the Bible, if there's sin in your life, Mitch, that, that sin is going to have a spotlight on it. And so then you've got to decide, well, am I going to repent of this, meaning I'm going to change? Am I going to ask God to forgive me, or am I going to keep doing it? And the choice of continuing to do what what you know God doesn't want you to do, that's what causes your fellowship with God to be broken. You know, throughout Leviticus, and we're in, I'm going to finish chapter 11 uh, to, tonight, um, but, but one of the things that Leviticus uh, puts a light on is the need to sacrifice, whether they're willful sins or unintentional sins, they're still sins, and all sin separates us from fellowship from a holy God. And that's why First John 1, 9 is so valuable to us, Mitch, because it means that we can be cleansed instantly. And if you are cleansed and then you do something else, uh, ugly words come out of your mouth, uh, you can say, oh, I didn't want to do that, Lord, I'm sorry. Help me clean up my mouth, those kind of things. Well, your fellowship with God is established uh, again instantly. So, Mitch, thanks for the question. Alex says, when the Philippian jailer got saved, his family also got saved. Is that a promise for today? Um, Alex, it wasn't too long ago that I was in uh, chapter 16 of the book of Acts. I think we're in chapter 18, going to finish chapter 18 this coming Sunday. Uh, and, and we studied this. No, it's not a promise. If I get saved, my whole family is going to get saved. I know there's a lot of Christians that like to hold on to that, but but that's obviously contrary to the the screen, the, the teaching of the entirety of Scripture. Uh, no, uh, I think two things were in play there. I think Paul speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit with some prophetic value uh, was telling what's going to happen. You're going to get saved, and because you're going to get saved, your family's going to get saved. Uh, but it was just, uh, the, this is the fact. It wasn't a, okay, you get saved, and God's going to just rope your whole family in. We have to make our choices individually. I can't save uh, anybody in my family. Uh, what I can do is live a life that honors the Lord. I can I can share Jesus with them. Uh, but they have to make their own choice. God will never override somebody's free will. So that's the first thing that happened in Acts chapter 16. Secondly, culturally, it was different then. Um, women, children really had no standing at all. And so uh, it was just assumed in the ancient world that whatever religion the man of the house said uh, that they were, that's what they were. And and in, in that culture, wives wouldn't at least openly rebel against the, the wishes of their husband. Um, and so um, Paul is simply saying uh, this reality is going to take place in your home. And remember, when the Philippian jailer got saved, the reason he got saved was because he had 
He'd watched Paul and Silas in the worst possible situation, having been beaten, they're in stocks, unbelievable pain, and no hope, looked like they were going to be killed, and they sang hymns to the Lord. They didn't complain, they didn't gripe, they just sang songs to the Lord, hymns to the Lord. Thank you, Alex, for the question. Let's go to our first call of the day. Scott, on line one from San Antonio. Scott, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. How are thank you, you doing Scott. Today? I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you. All right. Well, my, my schedule does only gets me in on the second half of your program, my, my commute home. But yesterday, something was said, and I didn't. there wasn't time for me to call in. And you were talking about, um, somebody had a question, and you were talking about uh, Christ um, came, of course, God came in the flesh, um, and that he set aside his glory, uh, or whatever. I mean, that's why, that's probably my words, not yours. Yeah. Um, but it stirred up something in my that I thought here for a long time, and I, I just want you to correct me, or elaborate it, or maybe clarify it for me. Um, when Jesus came to earth, he um, he set aside his glory because if he came his glory in his glory, everyone would have come to him. They wouldn't even had a choice. But he, he, of course, he was still fully God. But all the miracles, everything that he did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have access as born again believers. And in my mind, the reason why we don't see the miracles and we don't see the things that. That, that Jesus did is because, well, for, first off, he said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. So he was in the perfect will of God. And if we could get ourselves in the perfect will of God, I'm just thinking that we could see more of those miracles because we would be in God's will when those when those things came up. Anyway, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying here. I do. And, and, and I want to I want to hear your response on that, please. I'll Thank you. See you on the radio. Thank you, God Scott. You. I, uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, a couple of things. First, the question yesterday was uh, if Jesus really was God, why didn't he know the time or the hour of his coming? And my my answer was he knows now. But that information was hidden from him or veiled from him. Uh, he, he didn't hide his glory. Um, um, his glory, in fact, was manifest through the miracles on the Mount of Transfiguration. What he did was veiled his deity. In other words, he had the power of heaven. Remember, he said he could call down 12 legions of angels, but he chose not to. He had all the power of heaven at his disposal, but he let all of that go so that he could walk this planet just like you, Scott, and just like me by the power of the Holy Spirit doing the will of his Father in heaven. Now, Jesus obviously had the Spirit without measure because he didn't have a sin nature like I do, Scott, or like you do. And so uh, his, his walk with the Lord uh, was, was different than ours. His walk with his Father was different than ours because he didn't battle the sin when, when Satan tempted him. Um, you know, he didn't struggle with like, oh, man, I'm really hungry. That bread looks so good. I think I'll do it. And, and he didn't have that struggle. There was no sin nature in him. He, he said, my meat or, or my purpose, really, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. So I think that's important. Now, two other things regarding miracles. 
first, Scott, I think a bigger problem with the lack of miracles or the lack of power of God that we see in our lives is our lack of, of attention to personal holiness. You know, we, we walk this earth and we, we compromise. The question I had earlier about is moderate drinking okay? You know, I think we, we, we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out, well, how much of this world can I have and still be okay with Jesus? Rather than saying, how much of this world can I throw away so that I can be all in with and for Jesus? And uh, I think the the, um, the the lack of personal holiness um, is is really what shut off the source of our power. So I think that's important. You know, we want miracles. Honestly, Scott, most Christians in churches today wouldn't recognize a real miracle if we if it bit us. Um, just because our our perspective is so skewed. Secondly, remember the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Now, there was was other motivation. He had compassion. Uh, His heart was broken. But the purpose of his miracles was to show Jews that he was the Christ, the Messiah, who was declared with power to do these kinds of miracles when he came. So when he did these miracles, at one place he said, look, if you don't believe me, believe on the basis of the miracles that you've seen. Those miracles pointed him out as the Christ. And uh, what he's saying is, when you see me doing these miracles, you all ought to worship me because I'm him. So they were sign miracles. Now, Scott, we don't need sign miracles today. I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles. We are charismatic here at Calvary Chapel, and we believe in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. But the idea that that if if God just healed people today like he did, people would get saved. No, they wouldn't. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was crucified, there were only about 120 believers after three and a half years of ministry. Gosh, church marketing experts would say that was a failure. So the miracles didn't convince people. And I'm talking generally at large, the miracles didn't convince people. Scott, today we don't need signs. Now, I'm I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth for a moment because there are places in this world where miracles happen fairly routinely. Real miracles where people have visitations of the Lord, uh, where, where healings are done instantly, miraculously. Uh, I mean, the blind seeing, the crippled being able to walk, um, th- those kinds of miracles in full view of the people that are there to observe. Um, but in those places, um, to be a Christian is dangerous. To convert from, for example, Islam to Christianity could get you killed. To share Jesus with people could get you killed. And so when God puts his hand on somebody uh, in a situation like that, they need to know for sure that they've been visited by the real God. And so they're sign miracles, and there are still places, as I said, in the world today where those kinds of miracles are pretty commonplace, Scott. So uh, I I think it's a sort of a a, a, a combination of things, but lack of personal holiness and the idea that uh, nobody in this country needs a miracle. We all know about Jesus. Uh, we've got an empty tomb. We've got more Bibles that are, the Bible is still the best-selling book in the entire world. Um, by by so much, it's, it's not even 
worth talking about. So we've got the answers. We just don't want the answers. And the the reality is miracles aren't going to save anyone. You know, Scott, sometimes when I give, especially on a Friday night, uh, the Lord sometimes will let me know that there's a spirit of healing here. But but I know what he wants me to say when I when I let people know that, that God wants to heal tonight. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna get healed. People at our church know that. But what it means is that God wants to heal some. And all he wants him to do is make a commitment. Okay, Lord, if you heal this this illness, if you heal this condition then what I'm going to do is take all of the newfound strength and health that you give me and I'm going to use it 100% for you. And you know what, Scott? People don't come forward for prayer because they don't want to give up the things of this world. They'd rather struggle with not being healed than to say, okay, Lord, you heal me. I know it's you. I'm going to give you everything. They don't want to make that commitment. That's the reason that there aren't more miracles. Thank you, Scott. Always good to hear from you, dear brother. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from David. He says, Pastor Ron, what is a carnal Christian? Paul addresses the Corinthians as carnal, and I thought this was not possible. David, a carnal Christian, the word carnal comes from carnality or, or, or you know, carne. Uh, it means meat flesh. And um, uh, a carnal Christian is somebody who uh, is um, a real believer, uh, but but they're living a compromised life. They're compromised by giving in to their flesh. Now, you said you didn't think that was possible. Um, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is written to carnal Christians, and yet Paul calls them brethren. Brothers, sisters, he calls them repeatedly. He acknowledges they're part of the family. You know, you used to do this, but now you do this. They're part of the family. Now, that doesn't mean that they're walking in the fullness that God has for them. But what it means is that they're really saved. They, they, Paul considers them a part of the family. And I would suggest to you, David, that that's the reason verse Corinthians sounds so harsh. You know, if you just picked up 1 Corinthians and didn't have any background at all on what was going on in Corinth or the relationship between Paul and the church, you'd say that, that whoever wrote this is scolding them. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's scolding them because they have decided that they're going to do things their way. In the church at Corinth, there was petty jealousy, people taking sides. They were abusing spiritual gifts. Imagine abusing spiritual gifts. Well, we don't have to imagine because we see it done all the time. But but the reason I call attention to that is is that the, the gift that God gives us, we then take and, and wrap it around our flesh, and God no longer is glorified. So the whole idea here is all these terrible things going on, and Paul is saying all this stuff is because of your flesh. And he has hope for them. He, he wants them to improve. He wants them to change. But he deals very directly with them. And if you read First Corinthians um, a couple of times, you can't miss the fact that, that Paul is speaking to family members. And he's addressing them very harshly, very directly. Now, of course, in love. 
You can be direct and loving at the same time. You can actually be harsh and loving at the same time. And that's what he's doing. And all because he wants more for them than they can possibly imagine. So, David, that's what a carnal Christian is. And all you got to do is go to church on Sunday and you're going to find a bunch of carnal Christians. That's a Christian that wants to drink. That's a Christian that that uh, wants to do drugs. That's a Christian that wants to have sex. That's a Christian that can't get away from the screen with pornography all over it. That's just carnal Christianity. So, David, yeah, they're real carnal Christians. We can't judge. We can't know who's saved and who's not saved. But God knows. He won't be deceived. He can't be mocked. He knows those who are his. Last question for today's program. This one is from Darren. And Darren, I have a little trouble with your question, knowing exactly what you mean. But you're asking, is Acts chapter 2 a revival? Um, If I understand your question right, um, I think it's, it's a move of God's Spirit. Now, we know that it is the initial move of God's Spirit in this world in terms of, of, of speaking to large numbers of people and converting masses of people at the same time. But it's not a revival because obviously nobody was saved. Um, a revival means to awaken that which was once alive. The people weren't alive. They were dead in their sins and trespasses, and the Holy Spirit opened their hearts. And when he opened their hearts... Uh, they were convicted of sin. Peter pointed the finger and said, you killed God. And they said, what shall we do? Uh, the, the King James says they were pricked in their heart. And brothers, what shall we do? And that's when Peter told them to repent, be baptized for the remission of sins. Uh, that doesn't mean baptism saves you. It just means Jews understood the concept of a baptism of repentance. And uh, so I don't think it was a revival. It was just a move of God's spirit uh, such a powerful move of God's Spirit that it literally changed the world. Now, Darren, as you know, uh, that has never been repeated. It will never be repeated. Other times when we read in the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit fell, there were no cloven tongues of fire. There was no uh, sound of a mighty rushing wind. Um, there was just, just uh, the Spirit is invisible. But He was moving in the hearts of the people. So, Darren, that's Uh, what Acts chapter 2 was all about. Uh, A revival is simply a sovereign move of God. Um, uh, For example, we're praying for revival here in this country before Jesus returned. Well, there'll be a sovereign move of God. It will be marked by repentance from sin and a move to the fullness of God's Spirit. Thank you for the question, Darren. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow, be ready. Paula will be live in studio on the date day edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.